Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. A Dane County judge set a date of September 2024 for the jury trial of the Republican fake electors and two lawyers that assisted them. Law Forward, a Democratic Party advocacy organization, accuses the group of attempting to cast electoral votes for former President Trump after the 2020 presidential election. Multiple lawsuits and recounts have affirmed that Joe Biden won the state of Wisconsin. The judge estimated that the trial might take one month to be heard. This would put the cohort, the court deliberations of an electoral fraud case within weeks of the 2024 presidential election. Law Forward is seeking $2.4 million in damages. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the state health department provided grants and funds to some health agencies without sufficient documentation. That's according to a state audit report. However, there was no indication of any improper or illegal activity in the grant program. That audit was performed by the state's nonpartisan Legislative Audit Bureau and looked at 31 grants given by the agency, totaling around $3 million. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the audit found 10 of those grant recipients did not submit sufficient documentation to support their applications. Those grants totaled around half a million dollars. The department secretary said in response to the audit that the grants, quote, were implemented during highly unusual circumstances of the public health emergency. Union workers at CUNA Mutual Group here in Madison have voted to continue their strike through at least June, WKOW reports. That strike began last Friday. The Workers' Union, Office and Professional Employees International Union, or OPEIU, said that CUNA Mutual has engaged in unfair labor practices such as not bargaining in good faith and taking illegal actions against the union's members. The union's last contract expired more than a year ago. At a meeting of union members last night, a vote to continue the strike was approved by 94% of those voting. Dane County has survival rates for cardiac arrest that are nearly twice the national average. Data released by the county today shows that in 2022, 65% of those who had cardiac arrest in which a bystander intervened survived. That's nearly double the 34% national survival rate and better than the Wisconsin statewide average of around 42%. In more than 62% of cardiac arrest calls across Dane County in 2022, bystanders began giving chest compressions before responders arrived. That's up 40% from the year earlier. The improvement came in part from the work of Dane County 911 operators who coach callers on how to give effective compressions before ambulances arrive. The data was presented by county officials today in celebration of Emergency Medical Services Week. The County Health Department has closed Lake Mendota's Spring Harbor Beach for swimming due to a large blue-green algae bloom in the water. Blue-green algae is a microbe that can cause stomach upset, rashes, and respiratory irritation. Dogs that ingest harmful algae blooms can die. While algae blooms can vary in appearance, in this case the beach appears like spilled paint on the water. Water conditions can change quickly, so remember to check the conditions of the water online before you head out. Plans for a reconstructed John Nolan Drive will likely include narrower lanes, more green space, and greater distance between the road and the bike path 
That's according to the Wisconsin State Journal. These changes are generally known as traffic calming measures. Their purpose is to slow traffic on the road so that it feels less like a highway and more like a city avenue. The city's Transportation Commission is discussing what the future of John Nolan Drive will look like at a meeting this evening. That meeting is currently in progress. It began at 5.30. The $30 million project will replace the pavement and six bridges along the causeway. Work on the project could start as soon as 2025, and the project will be partly financed by $15 million in federal funds. Currently, about 48,000 vehicles and 4,000 bicycles use John Nolan Drive each day. The Dane County Health Department has issued a public health alert due to a spike in drug overdoses in our community. Over the past two days, there have been nine EMS incidents involving overdoses requiring Narcan. Two people have died from this string of overdoses. Public Health reminds you that free fentanyl test strips and Narcan uh, at both their Park Street and East Washington locations, uh, which are both open from 8.30 until 4.30, Monday through Friday. Those are the headlines, and now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Earlier this month, Republicans in the state's budget writing committee removed a provision from the governor's proposed budget to bring a paid family leave plan to Wisconsin. At a meeting yesterday, Democrats tried to ease family paid family leave back into the budget, but the debate over their new plan quickly turned contentious. Following the sparring was our producer, Nate Wuggehaupt. That the Republican nominee for governor this past fall supported publicly paid family leave. That's Democratic Representative Evan Goike of Milwaukee, whose mic was shut off during a heated debate at the Joint Finance Committee yesterday as Republicans shut down a plan to study paid parental leave here in Wisconsin. Earlier this year, Republicans in the state budget writing committee axed over 500 items from Governor Evers' proposed budget, including a plan to provide 12 weeks of paid parental leave for both public and private sector workers. That plan would have cost the state around $243 million up front and would have been self-sufficient by 2026. When that plan was tossed earlier this month, the committee barred any further discussion of paid parental leave. But Democratic Senator Kelda Royce of Madison says that what they proposed was very different from Evers' proposed plan. What we're talking about is gathering data about what the costs or benefits would be to the state of having paid family leave accessible to citizens and specifically looking at issues of outmigration. This is very different from what the governor proposed, which was an actual paid family leave program. We're just proposing something that was never proposed by the governor to study the issue so that we can address the workforce crisis that we're facing. Because the proposed study was the only allowed item at yesterday's meeting, Democrats were not allowed to discuss the merits of paid parental leave. This caused Representative Goyke's mic to be cut after Republican leaders in the committee determined that he had strayed too far from the study. Instead, Democrats focused on boosting Wisconsin's workforce. According to a report published last fall from Forward Analytics, the research arm of the Wisconsin Counties Association, the state lost over 100,000 people under the age of 26 over the past decade. 
That report found that trends are continuing to decline, and by 2030, the state's working age population could shrink by around 130,000 people. Democrats, such as Representative Tip McGuire of Kenosha, says that Wisconsin's policies around issues such as abortion are driving young people away. We're competing with other states in making Wisconsin a livable place for working families. We're we're competing and trying to make Wisconsin a place where workers want to come, where they believe that they and their families have a future. And paid family leave is, is an essential component of that, and I think that we should be studying it as a committee. But Republican Representative Shannon Zimmerman says that the paid parental leave will have the opposite effect and instead drive workers away from Wisconsin. I'm sitting here listening today to this, and this is lunacy personified in some ways. I mean, we have a shrinking pool of workers, and the answer that we're hearing here is let's continue to find more ways that those that shrinking pool of workers are going to support those who don't really want to work or can't work. Right. So that's going counter to what we're trying to accomplish here entirely. But Representative Goyke says that Zimmerman's interpretation of the provision is incorrect. It's not some radical policy. It's not a public benefit welfare. It's earned. Workers pay in and they get that back when they need it. It's not an entitlement program. It's earned by working. It's not an encouragement to not work. You don't get it if you don't work. You don't get paid time off if you're unemployed. Time off from what? Representative. I'm responding to my colleague. That provision failed to pass in yesterday's meeting along party lines. The Joint Finance Committee will meet again tomorrow to continue to discuss the budget. They are expected to send their finalized proposed budget to Governor Evers next month when he can either sign, veto specific portions, or even veto the entire budget. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Students from Memorial High School sought changes at the Madison School Board meeting Monday. Their request? Better bathroom security. WORT reporter Abigail Levins has more on what they want and why. We're happy to work with you, but it shouldn't be a privilege to pee in dignity. That's Cameron Craig, a junior at Val Phillips Memorial High School and a non-binary student. Craig said that students are avoiding eating and drinking so they don't have to use school bathrooms. Craig was one of five students who spoke virtually during the open forum at the Madison Board of Education meeting Monday night. The students spoke to draw attention to issues with bathroom security and cleanliness, especially the gender-neutral bathrooms. Mushroom Latex, a sophomore memorial, said they would love to use the gender-neutral bathrooms, but they do not feel comfortable there. So they use the female restrooms, where they barely feel comfortable. Chris Fernandez, a junior at Memorial, agreed that the gender-neutral bathrooms are not a safe space. Fernandez says that people hide in there to skip class or smoke. Not that long ago, when I needed to actually use the bathroom, I didn't feel comfortable going into school, and I ended up having to hold it until I got home. Student Theo Polet said he has a chronic condition and gets migraines from the smell of weed in the gender-neutral bathrooms. But he says the gendered bathrooms are often flooded. Whether or not I'll be able to use the bathroom should not be something I have to worry about at school on a daily basis. Students said cleanliness and safety are consistent concerns. But according to sophomore Robert Cohn, the problems don't stop there. Cohn mentioned seeing a fish in the toilet once as well as other random but concerning pranks. Some that happened a few times, like a pair of trash can fires or... More than a few, like people stealing soap dispensers, stalled doors, or an entire dang toilet. The students named several specific requests for the school board. They asked the board to hire more custodians, have more consistent cleaning schedules, and increase bathroom security. 
Cohn said that the school should have new stalls with doors that fit floor to ceiling to eliminate the worry that other students will look over or under the stalls. They said that one student has even grabbed their foot before. The students also encouraged more supervision from staff to ensure bathrooms are well taken care of. Here's Polette. Just today, I was dealing with a bloody nose and had to end up cleaning off in the middle of class because I couldn't get into a bathroom after waiting for 10 minutes just to clean the blood off of my hands. We are here to demand cleaner and safer bathrooms because that is nothing less of what we deserve. Thank you for your time. MMSD spokesperson Tim Lamont said the board is thankful the students brought this to their attention and that Madison Memorial has tripled the number of gender-neutral bathrooms. Lamont said it is challenging to monitor the gender-neutral bathrooms because they are single-stall and lockable. But they have other ideas. Right. By bringing this to our attention, we're certainly uh, looking at ways uh, that we can make those facilities comfortable and safe for everyone. Lamont said they could monitor hallways to see who is going in and coming out of the bathroom. And because smoking concerns were brought up, they're considering installing smoke detectors to mitigate that problem. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. Earlier today, a group of peace activists marched on the Madison offices of three of Wisconsin's federal lawmakers to hand-deliver a petition calling on them to publicly call for a ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine. Our producer, Nate Weggehaupt, spoke with two of the petition presenters earlier this afternoon. Earlier today, the Madison chapter of the worldwide peace organization World Beyond War went to the offices of Senators Ron Johnson and Tammy Baldwin and U.S. Representative Mark Pocan to deliver a petition calling on the lawmakers to issue a public statement calling for an end to the war in Ukraine. To learn more about this petition and what this group is doing here in Madison, I'm joined now by Janet Parker and Cameron Mirza with Madison for a World Beyond War. Uh, Thank you both of you for talking with me today. Our pleasure. Thank you, Nate. So just to begin, right now, as we are talking, you are outside the offices of of Tammy Baldwin here in Madison. Uh, What's what's going on over there? Today, uh, they started off at Senator Ron Johnson's office at 2.30 this afternoon, uh, walked up to his, his dropped off the petition, asked for him to agree with the de-escalation of conflict in Ukraine. Uh, Same thing happened at Senator Mark Pocan's office at uh, 3.30 this afternoon. And then now at 4.30 this afternoon, we've got people up at Tammy Baldwin's office doing the same, demanding the same, demanding uh, de-escalation and negotiation rather than uh, fueling the war drive. And now, like you said, you've been to a couple different offices here today. Uh, how 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 has it gone? Were the lawmakers offices uh, receptive? Yes. Um, now, Ron Johnson, interestingly, has come out in March. He made a bunch of public statements calling for ceasefire and negotiations and saying we should stop sending weapons. It's interesting. He's been on the Foreign Relations Committee just recently off, but he opposes sending more weapons to Ukraine. So we thanked him for that. And um, in fact, thanked his staffer, I should say, for that. And um, we're really calling on Representative Pokan to take a lead because he's got a secure seat and he could be standing up to this insanity from the Biden administration. So over the weekend, Biden administration announced, uh, gave a green light for Ukraine to use U.S. weapons to strike in Crimea, Russian soil. So it's we're in, an, in a very, very dangerous, unprecedentedly dangerous time in terms of potential for nuclear war. 
right now. That's why we're calling on our elected officials and building a mass movement to call for stopping the killing, start talking, and end this brutal war. And now tell me about this petition that you actually handed over to these these lawmakers. Uh, tell, what does that petition say? Well, we gave them two things. We gave them a petition from the Peace in Ukraine Coalition, which is over 100 peace groups from around the U.S., and signed by many prominent figures calling for peace talks now in this bloody stalemated war, which has killed so many people and displaced so many people and now threatens the whole planet with nuclear war. So that that ceasefire petition is at Peace in Ukraine, their website. You can sign it as an individual, and we hope that people will get involved with our chapter of World Beyond War, which is a war abolition group. Our group is one of the signers of this petition, which just came out in Capitol Hill newspaper today, calling on the Biden administration, the Zelensky and the Putin administrations to stop killing, start talking. We also are dropping off the New York Times open letter that was printed last week in the New York Times and is covered on Democracy Now! last Wednesday from a group called the Eisenhower Media Network who are calling also for ceasefire and negotiations. And now tell me about your group a little bit, Madison for a World Beyond War. Uh, Who are you? We're an international war abolition group. And we started a Madison chapter of the group. It's called World Beyond War. And you can get on our email list to find out about our events. We do a weekly war abolition walk where we get out up close, face-to-face, banner, give people flyers, and try to build the mass movement to oppose the war in Ukraine and this war and abolish war. And now this this group is is worldwide as well, correct? Uh, this is the, you are just part of the Madison chapter here. Uh, what can you tell me about your the the worldwide efforts from your group? World Beyond War does a, a whole variety of of anti war war abolition um, work and functions through chapters around the world. One more really encouraging piece of news just was coming out yesterday. The South African president and four other African presidents are going to be going to Kiev and Moscow next week to push for peace talks. So, I mean, there's it's a very scary time, but there's also many people speaking up and trying to stop the killing and start diplomatic work that would end the war. Now, you published a a letter in The Hill, uh, and now part of that letter reads, quote, the longer the war goes on, the greater the danger of spiraling escalation, which can lead to a wider war, environmental devastation and nuclear annihilation, end quote. Now, tell me a little bit about that and your, your views on what would happen if the war in Ukraine were to continue. Oh, absolutely. Uh, So we can already sort of see the the seeds of this escalation even since close to the beginning of the war with the uh, destruction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and uh, the various things that have happened around that, and especially with some recent articles that have come out clearly demonstrating that it was not a rogue group that had uh, demolished that pipeline, but rather people who would have required a, a specific level of expertise. And then at the same time, we have the missile from Ukraine that had landed in Poland that was 
there was an attempt to spin that as a missile from Russia landing in Poland, and that was pushed uh, by mainstream media and by the Ukrainian government in order to try and get uh, aids and weapons from Poland and uh, other uh, European powers. And then at the same time today, we can even see uh, Ukrainian special forces being brought to other NATO countries uh, to be training. Now, this is very close to bringing other powers into the fold. And if that happens, especially with um, the clear red lines that have been drawn by the Russian government since uh, the beginning of this conflict, we can absolutely foresee that it will turn into an all-out brutal conflict that will lead to, if mismanaged and if continued to escalate in the way that it is, nuclear apocalypse, essentially. And I would add, Nate, I would encourage listeners to look at the Eisenhower Media Network website. Look at this full-page ad in the New York Times last week. They spell out exactly what some of the background um, for the war. They call for empathy for the positions on all sides and getting to the negotiating table. And they've got lots of detail from people who are foreign policy experts. For me, uh, my I feel like I want to take put my energy towards pushing for ceasefire and negotiations and knowing that the intercontinental ballistic missiles that are aimed even this way to to North America could be deployed in, in days or hours from now. The situation is unprecedentedly dangerous. And just wrapping things up here, do either of you have just any final thoughts that you would like to share with us here? Well, I would say that listeners need to get involved in uh, local war activism, whether that's joining uh, World Beyond War. I would definitely recommend joining them, especially on those uh, weekly war abolition walks. Uh, If you're able to, there's a Code Pink chapter starting here. Uh, We also got Party for Socialism and Liberation in Madison. And uh, the main way that we're going to be able to make any real changes by calling on our own government to stop the conflict in the ways that it can and to call for the abolition and dissolution of NATO, which is a Cold War relic used to fuel anti-communism and promote uh, capitalists and fascists across Europe and the U.S. I've been talking with Janet Parker and Cameron Mirza with Madison for a World Beyond War about the petition they delivered to Wisconsin's lawmakers in Washington earlier today. Uh, Thank you both of you for taking the time to talk with me today. You're welcome. Thank you, Nate. Of course. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate it. Six thirty-three now, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host Robert McClure here with my co-host Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. WORT's ongoing series Water Stories explores environmental, recreational, and public health issues relating to water. Today's episode is about how citizens can help protect our lakes by becoming involved with Wisconsin's Citizen Lake Monitoring Network. Feature producer Greg Michaud stalks with Paul Skuinski, statewide educator with the Wisconsin Citizen Lake Monitoring Network. They discuss how information gathered by citizens is used to identify problems affecting lakes in Dane County and simple but effective steps that anyone can take to help restore the health of our lakes.
This morning, we are speaking with Paul Skowinski, who is a statewide educator for the Wisconsin Citizen Lake Monitoring Network. Paul, thank you for joining us today. Can you tell us a little bit about the Wisconsin Citizen Lake Monitoring Program in regards to when did it start, how many lakes are being monitored, and approximately how many volunteers are currently involved? The Wisconsin Citizen Lake Monitoring Network started in 1986, so almost 40 years ago now, with a little over 100 lakes initially. And we actually have still several of the same volunteers that are monitoring their lakes after 37 years now. Uh, The number of lakes and volunteers involved changes a bit from year to year, but we usually hover between 700 and 800 lakes per year and roughly 1,000 volunteers per year. What types of information do the volunteers gather once they're out on the lakes? Yeah, well, back in 1986, we just asked volunteers to collect a simple water clarity measurement on their lakes. And a few years later, the volunteers were interested in gathering more information on water chemistry of their lakes. So we started collecting total phosphorus and chlorophyll and water temperature and dissolved oxygen data too. Uh, These days, our volunteers still collect the same information, but many of them also monitor things like ice cover, and they look for early populations of aquatic invasive species, too. And when does the season start and end? And then once the season starts, how frequently do you need the volunteers to get out on the lakes to gather this information? That varies a little bit between volunteers because some of them are full-time on the lakes and some of them move away from the lake during the colder months. But we like to see monitoring taking place between May and September. Um, many volunteers are out on the mon- they're out monitoring the lakes as soon as the lake opens up in the spring and until it freezes again in the fall. So it does vary a little bit. The first water chemistry sample needs to be taken within two weeks of the lake opening up in the spring. So that could be mid-March in the southern part of the state, or it could be mid-May up in the north. And as far as frequency goes, water chemistry samples are taken four times per year, once after ice out, and then in the second half of June, July, and August. Water clarity measurements are more frequent. They're taken every 10 to 14 days, usually from May to September, but sometimes longer than that, depending on the volunteer. And we're also fortunate to be part of a project that uses a space satellite called Landsat 8. And that satellite can estimate water clarity on lakes across Wisconsin from space. Uh, We give a a schedule of of the satellite's flyover dates to the volunteers, and if they can collect water clarity measurements on those same dates, the measurements then can be provided to the satellite project. And they basically help to confirm the satellite's estimates and help calibrate the satellite's equipment. And then the satellite can actually record water clarity estimates and trends over time on lakes that do not have an active volunteer, or it could be a lake that's really remote or difficult to access. And Paul, can you briefly describe the training that these volunteers receive before they get out on the lakes to start gathering this information? Sure, we provide all of the training and equipment that the volunteers need, so there's really no expense to them. We have a combination of DNR staff and non-DNR partners around the state that train new volunteers and they provide ongoing support for them. They provide their equipment and replace equipment if needed. And they also show the volunteers how to get their monitoring information into the state water quality database and interpret what that information means. Usually 
A new volunteer is trained right at their own lake, and we can demonstrate how to take measurements and collect the water samples. We also provide refresher trainings in the springtime for volunteers, and we have a series of refresher videos on YouTube that the volunteers can watch after a long winter season to refresh their memory on monitoring methods before they start monitoring the lake again. Since the information gathered is used to assess the health of these lakes, what have we learned thus far about the problems or issues affecting those lakes right here in Dane County? Yeah, the biggest issue in Dane County and really most of our counties in the state is excess nutrient pollution. And nutrients can get into a lake from all kinds of sources, and that would include eroded soils that get into the lake. It could include runoff of fertilizers, whether that's from a residential lawn or an agricultural field, or even things like dog waste or lawn clippings that get into the lake. Uh, When you get an overload of nutrients into a lake, it can cause all kinds of problems like abundant aquatic vegetation or algae blooms, including the harmful blue-green algae or cyanobacteria. It can cause fish kills, or it can cause invasive species populations to thrive because they tend to like those high-nutrient conditions. And once phosphorus accumulates in a lake, it can be recycled year-to-year within the lake, and it will just perpetuate those conditions over and over again. There's a, a cool project in the Madison area called the Suck the Muck Project, where mucky sediments full of phosphorus are removed from tributary streams before they can flow down to the Yahara Lakes and deliver that phosphorus load that they contain. And a lot of farmers in the area are also working with groups like the university and DNR and the nonprofit Clean Lakes Alliance to figure out ways to keep soil on the land and re- reduce the potential role of agriculture contributing to any water quality problems downstream. Paul, what are some of the good practices that people can take to help protect the lakes from these problems you've just identified? Right, right, that's important. Uh, I mentioned the the improved farming practices in the Suck the Muck project, which are pretty large-scale projects, but everyone has something they can do to improve the water quality of lakes in Dane County and, and across the whole state. The biggest thing that anyone can do is to reduce inputs of various pollutants into the water, and that could be nutrients like phosphorus, or it could be things like road salt or chemicals that are used on their property. Lakes occur in low spots in the landscape, and unfortunately for them, that means the surrounding land tends to slope down to the water, and anything that happens on the nearby land will have an impact on the lake itself, and that impact could be positive or it could be negative. I'm a really big fan myself of rain gardens, which are beautiful gardens, but they have a really important side benefit of capturing stormwater runoff from a property before it can flow down to a water body or a wetland. And that runoff can contain all kinds of chemicals and nutrients from the lawn or from a driveway or rooftop, sometimes even neighboring properties if the water flows from the neighbor. And a rain garden is planted in a low area which could be a natural low spot or it could be a man-made spot. And it provides a a low place for that water to be captured and filtered instead of it running directly down to a waterway through a storm sewer drain. A lot of people don't realize that most storm sewers run straight into a lake or a river. They don't have any kind of filtration or treatment. So that road salt and motor oil and grass clippings and everything else that runs down their driveway or down the road is going right into the lake or the river. 
So anything they can do to reduce erosion or chemical use or runoff is ultimately going to be good for the water quality of the lakes. And I should mention that rain gardens are not ponds. They tend to hold water for a matter of minutes or a few hours after a storm, and then the water all soaks in and it's gone. Sometimes there's a uh, concern with mosquitoes in rain gardens, but there isn't water sitting in there long enough for that to really become an issue. Those are all good examples, and some of them are, are relatively easy for people to apply. How can people who might be interested in joining this program become involved? Sure. The Citizen Lake Monitoring Network is always looking for more volunteers. The best way to find more information about the network is through our website. So they can go to uwsp.edu slash uwexlakes and then click on the Citizen Lake Monitoring Network button. Uh, I'd also encourage people in the Madison area to, to, to uh, consider working with the Clean Lakes Alliance and other local groups that focus on protecting and enhancing the Ahara chain specifically. Um, the Clean Lakes Alliance website is just cleanlakesalliance.org. Nice, easy one. So there's lots of ways to get involved. We've been talking with Paul Skowinski, who is the statewide educator for the Wisconsin Citizen Lake Monitoring Program. Paul, thanks f- so much for sharing your time with us today. Of course. It was great talking with you, Greg. Appreciate it. Bye now. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we hit 83 degrees today. Uh, Not quite our warmest temperature so far this year since we hit 83 a couple other times, including way back on the 12th of April, you might remember. That was back at the start of that really warm week we had. 83 was close to a record back then. Uh, Yesterday, not so much. The record high temperature for the 23rd of May is actually 91. Uh, Not much chance of us uh, seeing the thermometer reach that sort of temperature territory anytime soon, but we may finally break through our 83-degree temperature ceiling as we get out into next week. And given some uncertainties in the modeling, actually a run towards 90 by the end of uh, the month, which is next week, next Wednesday, uh, isn't out of the question. We'll certainly be in an overall pattern conducive to warm temperatures and generally clear skies with upper ridging over us. So we'll see how the uh, later model details end up playing out. At the moment, of course, we've just had a noticeable cold front drop across the area this morning. So temperatures today ran a good uh, 10 or 12 degrees below what we saw yesterday. With east-northeasterly winds also ramping up as the cold pool deepened overhead. If you have a look at the uh, visible satellite image of the upper Midwest that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening, you'll see the location of that surface boundary now. It's demarcated by a narrow band of short cumulus as still pressing southwestward out in Iowa, lying from about the Quad Cities up towards Mankato. Uh, over Wisconsin, mid-level clouds lie along a more, the more elevated portions of that frontal surface, up a mile or two above ground level, mostly to our northeast. While there's also some high clouds, uh, cirrus mostly, streaming southeastward uh, over much of the state, including us. That's along the track of the upper jet. Uh, Those cirrus are comprised in part of remnant moisture from thunderstorms that blew up yesterday along the cold frontal boundary when it was still back up in North Dakota. 
So for the moment, we do have a fair bit of cloud cover over the state, but that's going to slowly get pushed eastward and south out of the area tomorrow as surface high pressure deepens and a mid-level ridge associated with the warm air aloft that's out to over the western half of the continent edges steadily eastward with dry, somewhat cool air in the low levels and dry and increasingly warm air coming in aloft. The uh, atmospheric stability is going to be what's defining the coming several days with little in the way of cloud cover until we get out uh, probably towards Sunday when southeasterly winds finally begin to veer southerly enough to latch on to enough moisture to begin producing some short cumulus again like we saw the past couple of days. Otherwise, though, upper ridging to our west and north, a pattern that's going to continue to send deeply warm, dry air up the plains to our west and over into eastern Canada. That'll keep any possibility of thunderstorm development, or even rain for that matter, uh, at bay. (coughs) Pardon me. Presuming the upper ridge finally does migrate eastward over us and past us, say Tuesday or Wednesday of next week, we may finally get a shot at some precipitation, but so far there's a little model consensus on that. But back to the particulars, uh, which you may find a bit repetitious, though at least not unpleasant over the coming days. Uh, Tonight, passing cirrus may be joined uh, at times by thicker mid-level cloud cover, especially in the northeast parts of the listening area. Temperatures will drop back to about the mid-40s or so by dawn, though areas that stay significantly clear for any length of time may go a little lower. Easterly winds will stay uh, somewhat active overnight, up at 8 to 12 miles per hour. Tomorrow, passing cloud cover should slowly work out of the area with uh, clear skies allowing temperatures to reach the mid and possibly the upper 60s on continued easterly winds up at 10 to 15 miles per hour. Winds should drop off more than overnight as uh, surface high pressure pushes more directly overhead and that should allow temperatures to drop into the low and mid 40s most places. Friday, winds will veer a bit more southeasterly at 4 to 8 miles per hour, and that'll help us reach 70, or perhaps slightly better, with the aid of sunny skies. Beyond the passing strands of cirrus, we should stay clear in the overnight with a low temperature in the upper 40s. And Saturday should be a a fairly near repeat to that, though perhaps a few degrees warmer, mid to upper 70s, given what will be slightly stronger southeasterly winds coming up to 8 to 12 miles per hour. Uh, Dew points will remain quite low through this entire period, down in the 30s and 40s on through Saturday, so very comfortably dry. Well, we may reach 80 as we get on towards Sunday, though we're likely to begin to see increasing high clouds by that time from activity out to our west and possibly some diurnal uh, cumulus development as well, as I was mentioning, as winds begin to veer more uh, southerly and southwesterly above ground level going into Monday and Tuesday. Uh, both days should be in the uh, low to possibly mid-80s, at least as we get out to Tuesday. The temperature currently down here at the station on Bedford Street is 67 degrees. The dew point temperature is a dry 33. Winds are out of the northeast at 15 miles per hour, still gusting up above 20 miles per hour fairly frequently. A fairly thick pall of cirrus over the station just now, and the barometer is fairly steady over the past few hours at 30.22 inches of mercury. We go now to the third week of May 1966 and the conclusion of the most well-received protest of the era. Here's Stu Levitan with tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, the third week of May, 1966, the draft deferment sit-in, part two. 
Thursday, May 18th, the week-long sit-in at the UW Administration Building, which at its peak packed about 2,000 into the hallways and stairwells, starts to wind down. The peaceful, non-obstructive action, instigated Monday by leaders of the Students for a Democratic Society, but quickly embraced by both student government and the Interfraternity Council, isn't actually against the war in Vietnam or even the draft. It's against letting college men avoid the draft through their 2S student deferment. The protesters want to get rid of the deferment so that the war's true impact fully hits middle and upper class families, not just the poor and non-white so that those politically powerful groups turn against the war. But as the war in Vietnam expanded in late 1965 and the monthly draft call kept getting higher, the draft system itself reduced deferments. When it hit 40,000 in December, Draft Director General Louis B. Hershey warned that marginal students, about 10% of university freshmen and sophomores, could soon lose their 2S status and be drafted. To define marginal, Hershey brought back the policy from the Korean War, and starting in January 1966, the Selective Service used class rank and or standardized test to determine deferments. Hershey did not address what happens to academic integrity when grades literally become a matter of life and death, another matter of concern to the protesters. Friday the 13th, a mass meeting of about 200 formed the Committee on the University and the Draft, the CUD. Their demands, that the university refuse to cooperate with the Selective Service System by not releasing academic records or allowing the draft exemption tests to be held in university facilities. CUD leaders met with university officials on Monday, but came away empty-handed. That's when a group walked into the administration building and sat down. By midnight, close to 1,500 students were taking part in the peaceful occupation. Chancellor Robin Fleming said the protesters could stay as long as they stayed out of the way of office business, which they did. Republican Governor Warren Knowles said it's an internal matter for the university to handle, and it did. Wednesday afternoon, an extraordinary gathering on Bascom Hill. President Fred Harvey Harrington and Chancellor Fleming speaking about the protest to a crowd of about 8,000. Fleming praised the protesters, quote, disciplined behavior and responsible manner and announced a special faculty meeting on the draft as demanded by the CUD for the coming Monday, May 23rd. Celebrating that success, the sit-in is reduced to a token force on Thursday and ends at 4.30 Friday afternoon. Saturday, another 1,700 young men take the deferment test. A few protesters hand out leaflets, but there are no pickets. It's a dark and stormy Monday afternoon, May 23rd, when a record 892 faculty pack the Music Hall Auditorium for the special meeting to consider four resolutions defining university policy on the draft. About an equal number of students listened to the proceedings, piked into the Great Hall and other Memorial Union rooms. The students are upset at the start, as the faculty allows only 90 minutes for debate, barely one minute of meeting for each hour of sit-in. Professor Harvey Goldberg moves that the UW not release class rank in any form to anyone, provide academic transcripts only to students, and only notify draft boards as to whether a student is enrolled. His motion is silent on the use of university facilities for draft exams. 
Professor William Appleman Williams presents the CUD's resolution that the university not cooperate with the Selective Service by releasing class rankings to them or permitting the use of campus facilities for the deferment exam, and that it not provide transcripts directly to students but only to potential employers. The Williams and Goldberg variations are both rejected by voice vote, as is one offered by Professor Michael Petrovich on behalf of teaching assistants. With little debate, the faculty overwhelmingly adopts the version from the powerful University Committee that class rank not be set to draft boards but remain available to the students along with transcripts for whatever purpose they wish and that campus facilities should remain available for the draft deferment exams. The resolution also creates a student faculty committee as urged by the Wisconsin Student Association, quote, to review all selective service problems and procedures facing the university. As introduced, the university committee's resolution also denounced, quote, illegal and unauthorized means of protest, declaring the faculty, quote, unalterably opposed to coercive methods which interfere with normal university operations. But at the insistence of Professor George Mossy, the faculty deleted those sections. The activists are shattered by the faculty vote. A total defeat, Evan Stark says, as the movement's trust in the faculty evaporates in an instant. The group decides to resume the sit-in, but the administration building is locked. So about a thousand go back up the hill to Bascom Hall, which they occupy throughout the night. Although Fleming had earlier forbidden further sit-ins, he does not rouse them. But Tuesday morning, he tells the leaders that he's, quote, deeply disturbed by the occupation and warns of serious disciplinary action if it's not ended promptly. It is, as voted by the remaining 200 activists. That night, about 120 students vote to make the CUD permanent, with Stark and Lowell Bergman as co-chairs. Finals start on Thursday. University officials praise the protesters profusely. Harrington calls the leaders, quote, predominantly high-level students acting against their own self-interest, and he describes their decorum inside the administration building as, quote, quite extraordinary. Regent Kenneth Greenquist, a past commander of the State American Legion, says the university, quote, has come out of this particular situation with greater prestige than it had going into it. But he does have one complaint, with newspaper photographs that he says unfairly represent the protesters as unwashed and unkempt. Ideas are not related to how men dress, shave, or cut their hair, he says. History professor William Taylor thinks the protest's importance goes beyond the immediate issue. On a campus with several distinct and often combative subcultures, he says the most important result of these nine days in May was, quote, the discovery that a university could operate as a community. At least it could in May 1966. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Abigail Levins. Our script editor was Russ Mackey. Special thanks to feature contributors Greg Michaud and Stu Levitan. 
Chuck Kaderman is our engineer, as he is every Wednesday evening. Nate Weggy helped produce the newscast, and Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.